Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 55 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the twisted genius Dean Ayers, and I am joined as ever by my esteemed co-host, the sports journalist, Liam Happ. Good evening to you, Liam. How are you doing on this self-isolating evening? I'm feeling extremely relieved, Dean. That's how I'm feeling. Uh, After an anxious 15 minutes wait, Skype finally decided to let me in. For a second there, I was fearing that it was going to lock me out in the same way that we are all locked in. But we're here. The joys of technology. Oh yes, it's a, it's a big relief though because we have a very special episode planned, don't we? With a uh, not so special pay-per-view. Well, we have uh, yes, it's a pay-per-view review, um, and we'll we'll get on to uh, what we're what we're reviewing in a moment. But I would like to introduce our special guest for this episode, and I'd say a big hello to Justin Henry from Cultaholic. Hello, Justin. Hello, Dean. Hello, Liam. Thank you guys for having me on. Thank you for for coming on, and thank you for being incredibly patient while the technological gremlins were worked out. Much appreciated. Well, well I mean, uh, I do have so many places I have to be, so I mean, I I, I, oh, wait, I, I have nowhere to be because we're all locked down. I forgot. <laughs> so, uh, whereabouts in the in the states are you located? Well, I'm in the southern part of New Jersey, and for anyone who's been following these statistics, um, New Jersey's kind of a kind of a hellhole at the moment. Although that's more of the northern half since that's attached to New York City. So my half of the state is doing okay-ish, I'd say. And uh, you, so you guys have been in, in lockdown for a, f- a few weeks now? or? Well, not so much lockdown, just lots of guidelines, lots of please do this so that you don't die or don't infect <laughs> others. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it hasn't really changed my routine much anyway because I'm kind of a homebody as it is. So it's... It is different, though. It, it is very hard to get used to. And I mean, I take walks to kind of uh, get rid of the cabin fever. So. But outside of that, I'm usually working it from home anyway. So. So not too not too much of a, a change in that respect, I guess. So um, if if people haven't heard of, of Cultaholic, what what do you guys do? How can people well, find you? Well, you can go to Cultaholic.com or you could find us on YouTube. We're basically a hybrid. uh news presentation type of wrestling outfit we put out a lot of content particularly on youtube you know whether it's um show reviews whether it's historical perspectives um watch alongs all sorts of different stuff we've uh we're an offshoot from well let's just say the main four guys from called a hawk you know broke away from a certain other wrestling online entity about a couple years ago i can't really say the name because we're all sworn to secrecy on that well, it's kind of a, it's more of a valve silence when it comes to that name. Okay. So, Adam Pachidi and friends um, started called a Hulk in the fall of 2017, and I came on board not long after as the, as one of the main content writers. 
Okay, and so how did you get involved in, in wrestling yourself? Well, I've been a fan for over 30 years now, ever since I was um, five years old. It was the summer of 89, and my older brother had gotten me into WWE, into what was then WWF, shortly before SummerSlam 89. And for me, it was just like watching uh, you know, superheroes and villains come to life. And I recognized Hulk Hogan from the cartoon. I didn't realize he was a real person. Well, he's, a, he's also a cartoon, but that's, that's, that's kind of belaboring the point there. But yes, I, I was instantly hooked the minute I saw WWF for the very first time. And well, here I am today. Awesome. I, I know the feeling well. I remember you know, watching wrestling as a, as a little kid myself. My dad was a, bit, was a fan. And I, I don't know if uh, you're the same way you were told throughout your entire life that you'll grow out of it and you never quite did. Uh, not so much grow out of it. I, just, I was just around a lot of people who didn't understand it. Okay. And, and wrestling's like chicken pox. Either you get it or you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and my parents were were certainly not into it and they were kind of um somewhat disheartened that my brother and i were big fans of it but they abided it because we were obedient kids that did well in school so it's just like whatever it's what the boys like so it was really just one of those things nice okay thank you for that and um and uh, what pay-per-view have you chosen to review tonight well uncensored 2000 came up and uh i think this is kind of the in- indication of how bad things really were between Russo eras. Not that, not that the Russo eras were any good anyway, but this is a different kind of nadir. And I, I haven't seen this since in about the 20 years since. Wow. So this is um is it as bad as I remembered it? And uh, <laughs> spoiler alert, yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I've I've got to say the very first note that uh, that I wrote here when i was watching this was that 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 logo the final incarnation of the wcw logo it always just makes me feel sad because it in, not only does it indicate the end of, of wcw but it's just my memories of that that era just aren't good basically it's also a needlessly abstract logo like it doesn't really indicate it's like are those actually w's is that supposed to be a c it's just <laughs> It doesn't look like it's supposed to be anything. It's I can't remember what Eric Bischoff referred to it as. It's in that Nitro book. Uh, like, fluorescent vomit, wasn't it? Fluorescent vomit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wasn't a fan either, and I'm with Bish on that one. It's uh, mm. it's it, it, it's not a a logo should be something that you could write on your book cover while sitting in school when you're bored and not listening to the teacher, and that's like a whole project unto itself. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. Uh, okay, so this um, this is the final uncensored pay per view that WCW ran, um, and uh, the opening video highlights matches between Sting and Lex Luger that we first well we covered um, just recently. We we covered Super Bowl two from nineteen ninety two. Um, a good show. <laughs> A very good show, but that was headlined by Sting and Lex Luger. Um, incidentally, if you haven't uh, listened to that, we have special guest Doug Williams on that one. That's episode 52. And we also have Hogan and Ric Flair, who first fought in WCW in 94. 
four off the top of my head. Yeah, take um, your pick what episodes we covered that had Hogan Flair on it. There's at least yeah. three watch-alongs of Nitro, isn't there? Definitely, yes. So um, bear in mind, of course, this is the year 2000. So um, we're live in Miami, Florida, and our commentators are Tony Giovanni, Mike Tanay, and Mark Madden. Um, and after a few backstage skits, seeing the headliners arrive and a limo pull up, we're straight into the action with uh, the WCW Cruiserweight Championship being on the line with the champion, the artist with Paisley taking on Psychosis, who's got Juventud Guerrero in his corner. Um, so the artist is the wrestler formerly known as Prince Ayakia, and he's doing a, a gimmick where he's basically ripping off Prince. He's dressed in purple. He's got a valet called Paisley. She's also wearing purple. She has purple highlights in her hair. Um, didn't really work for me. I don't know what you guys thought of that gimmick. Um, well, he didn't really display any charisma with the gimmick. He was just, it was just the hat and the elaborate shirt. And it's, all right, it's Prince I.K. And we put him in a new costume. He wasn't very exciting before. And he's, he's bringing nothing new to the table now, except for wardrobe and a valet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were far uh, too subtle with the, the artist stuff, weren't they? Yeah, not, not enough references to really drive it home, I thought. I mean, this is wrestling at the end of the day. We don't do subtle. We need we need things to be driven home with a sledgehammer. Uh, quite literally in Triple H's case, I guess. Um, so, yeah, Psychosis and Hoover, they're both unmasked um, at this point in time. They'd been unmasked a few years back. Hoover looks better without a mask psychosis not so much um just as the bell rings some music plays and the debuting chris candido makes his way to the ring he takes up a place at the commentary desk um and the problem i found with this match uh, was that the commentators spent an awful lot of time talking about candido as opposed to talking about the action in the ring um, and it, it seemed to take away from things. But, I mean, the, the first highlight of the match was a top rope Hurricane Rana from Psychosis, followed by a, a, a front first suplex, which got a good a good ooh from the crowd. And, I mean, the crowd, we, we, we always talk about the art of the opener, and I'm sure you'll get onto this, Liam. But, yeah, the crowd seems to be quite into it. Um, Hoovy and Paisley start fighting on the outside while Psychosis lands a, a top rope leg drop. The end of the match comes quite abruptly when Paisley distracts psychosis that allows the artist to hit his middle rope jumping ddt for the pin in seven minutes 22 what did you think of our opener here justin i thought it was a very basic match and if i recall correctly the artist at this point was having a very hard time hitting that middle rope ddt it was like a very hard move to uh time up correctly and every time where he would just completely miss his opponent and either sail past him or they would just fall in different uh at different speeds and, and and just bungle the move completely. I thought it was an okay match though, because because here he actually did hit the move, so that that definitely helps. Although um, psychosis had to kind of stay in position for quite some time. Well, he's a pro psychosis. He's uh, all the years he's had to you know, work with Rey Mysterio, and where timing has to be absolutely you know pristine. You know, mm-hmm. everything has to, has to flow perfectly. He's uh, he's had. Of course, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying anything bad about Mysterio. I'm just saying there's a lot of elaborate stuff that goes into those matches. So, you know, being in the right spot and having having keen timing, psychosis, you think in those matches would have you know developed that pretty well. And I think it's obvious here that it pays off. But, yeah, the whole thing with Candido on commentary, it was 
it was really out of place and felt like an afterthought, especially when he's talking about my girlfriend, my girlfriend. He can't even mention Tammy Sitch by name, which is kind of strange. It's just yeah. like, you know, it's like we know who it is. Just say her name. Especially if you can just use her real name as opposed to Sunny, of course. Correct. But yeah, it was fine. It was middle ground for this show, which is not saying a whole lot, honestly. <laughs> Liam? Yeah, I, mean, I could be wrong on this. I'll have to do a bit of digging. But if memory serves me correctly, were they just a little delayed in getting Tammy Sitch's signature over the line for her contract? Mm. I think okay. there may have been something about that, but I could be wrong. That would be my first guess, thinking back of it. Uh, yeah, the, as far as the DDT goes, yeah, it's it's no wonder you see most people who go for an acrobatic DDT always look for the, the tornado variant, and that allows them to actually just be caught by their opponent first, and then they do the DDT bit afterwards. I think the only guy I've ever seen and I, I, I'm not an encyclopedia for local wrestling all around the world. But funny enough, not far from you, Justin, a wrestler who usually wears face paint by the name of a Barian, who's worked Shikara and a lot of Jersey Indies. Uh, okay. was probably the only guy I've ever seen to really do a good version of that diving DDT where they just come straight down and spike them with it. Uh, otherwise, yeah, especially considering the <coughs> calibre of Prince IK, you'd wonder why they lumbered in with such a difficult finisher to begin with. Uh, I thought mm-hmm. it was funny that, yeah, you're right, Dean, the crowd was up for this. Art at the opener means you're always going to have a hot crowd. You'd think, theoretically, depending on location, I suppose, but they've gone and taken that crowd, and, and for me, the ending kind of uh, killed them a bit. <laughs> it was a really deflating thing. Mm-hmm. And the Candido thing makes it even more baffling because they are clearly lining him up as the next guy. And even though things change, this will come up a lot, things change dramatically between this pay-per-view and the next Spring Stampede. Uh, Even though things did change, uh, it seemed obvious that they were setting up Chris to be the next Cruiserweight title threat. He did, in the the new era, he did win win the title at the next pay-per-view, I believe. Uh, and f- to that end, I'm shocked they didn't just pull the trigger on the reign of the artist, put put it on psychosis, have Candido come in and attack him, and there you go, you've got your next thing between yeah. two guys who can string a match together. Yeah, it's just the fact that you know, this music hits literally the moment you're expecting the, the, the guys to lock up just almost says to me, oh, this match isn't important. This is what's important. It, it just takes away from what the guys are doing. And and, and also, you know, and I, I speak you know, with, with my commentator hat on here that I personally, I hate having like the guest commentator that is a, a character on the show commentating because invariably they will talk about themselves as or their storyline, which is, you know, the whole reason they're doing that. When as a commentator, I like to be talking about the action that's happening in the ring, because that's what people are meant to be focusing on. Mm. And, uh, well, I think, I think highlighting Candida was kind of important at the time because, you know, you look at just how, how depleted this division was. I mean, when a freaking IAK is your champion, I think he beat Lash LaRue in the finals. This is kind of a, Kind of a downshift from Eddie Guerrero versus Rey Mysterio. Yes. I mean, all the all the radicals are in WWF. Jericho's in WWF. Mysterio, I think, was home at this point because I think he uh, he I think he walked out around that. Well, not really walked out, but was sent home around the whole 
you know, radical rebellion. So they're really hurting for talent at this point. And Candido, even though he was troubled at this time, was definitely a, you know, someone worth bringing in to try and bolster this division. Although, again, the commentary thing was kind of strange. Definitely. Okay, well, after a, a brief backstage interview with Mean Gene and Bam Bam Bigelow, um, looking ahead to his match with The Wall, which we'll have later, it's time for match number two. It's the team of uh, XS, which is Lane and Rave, um, against Norman Smiley and the Demon. So Lane and Rave are probably better than remembered as Lenny Lane and Lodi, um, the former West Hollywood blondes, formerly of Raven's Flock. Um, the guys who got WCW into... Um, Terrible trouble with uh, GLAAD um, mm-hmm. back in uh, probably what a year previous to this. Um, yes. And uh, it's also uh, worth noting that I believe Rave is a few months away from entering uh, rehab for addiction to GHB and painkillers here. So that's mm. the uh, WCW drug testing policy for you. Um, but before uh, before anything else happens, we have another guest commentator coming. And it's Miss Hancock, a.k.a. Stacey Keebler, making her way to the ring to join the commentary booth wearing a skirt that's so short, I'm not actually sure it qualifies as a skirt. Um, Mark Madden tries to get her to sit on his lap. It was a different time. It was a different time, everyone. Um, mm. Smiley comes out of the, the demon's casket with his face also painted up like Gene Simmons. Um, the only person in this match who's vaguely over is Smiley. He gets a pop for his dancing and, of course, the big wiggle. Um, XS work over Demon until he makes the tag and Smiley cleans house. Um, Shivani tries to bring Miss Hancock into the commentary and she can barely say anything, so Shivani then has to cover for her. Uh, fortunately, the end of the match then comes pretty much out of nowhere when Smiley locks on the crossface chicken wing onto Rave for the win in 3 minutes 41. Um, and immediately after the match, XS not selling anything from the match, try and essentially kidnap Miss Hancock. Did I mention that this was a different time? Uh, before the screaming demons, as they're known, come to her rescue and bring her into the ring to do the big wiggle with Norman Smiley and referee Billy Silverman. I mean, it was brief, Justin. Well, it was brief, but it was still a mess. I mean, what, what I take from this is Norman's over. Stacy's over. Pretty much no one else on this show was able to equal, you know, their reaction for obviously different reasons. And here they are in the second match of the night. It's like <laughs> people love the wiggle. People love Stacy. And this match was just in three and a half minutes. It felt still felt thrown together. It, it seemed hardly worth Norman even putting on the face paint for it. It was it was a train wreck. But at least it was short. I will say that Lenny Lane looked like 2020 Chris Jericho here. With the uh, with the rockstar <laughs> with the rockstar shirt and the sunglasses, I mean, I know they did the whole twin magic deal two years earlier, but now just like it's even freakier seeing how Jericho is today. You know, I hadn't tweaked that, but now you say that, absolutely yes, <laughs> very good call, yes. Minus Liam? the charisma, of course. Oh well, of course, <laughs> <laughs> Liam. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to try and defend this match as being good or anything. But if you think about what we just said about the result of the first one, you know what? I, I would have put this on first. 
when we talk mm -hmm. about the art of the open as you guys have said there's popular acts here there was a popular finish and if you overlook all the blown spots all the mess of the the storyline and or lack thereof or all the uh, treating miss hancock like she's an object that dean brought up if you can all of that you do have a great pop for the entrances for the finish you might as well throw as we always say like sometimes the best opening match is a is a fluff match but one that's got enough to just start things off with a, with a happy note and that could have been that uh and that that's probably the only positive thing i've got to say to be honest yeah i mean we've yeah we've spoken before about the the organization and the positioning of matches on cards i mean the last um the last review we did super rule two with doug williams we we talked about how they had they all three tag matches stuck together in 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 a in a block in the middle of a card didn't and, even bother to differentiate them either they they pretty <laughs> much followed the same road road agent <laughs> notes didn't they yes um and yeah my my thoughts on this were uh, yeah it could have either been the, the the opener or it could have been something where you know in between between two bigger and more intense matches where you want to entertain the crowd, but yes. just bring them down a little bit somewhere later on in the show. But at three but minutes hey. as well, you think about like the, the times around this time in uh, WWE 2000, they had, what mm. was it? Cat and Terry Runnels going out and wrestling in thongs. And that would run for about mm. exactly three minutes. There's another <laughs> women in a different time for you, Dean. But um, if anyone is vaguely interested, uh, that's going to be like maybe two people who've listened to every episode from the start. If anyone's interested in the actual alleged storyline situation here, uh, Lane and Lodi disappeared without a trace from their West Hollywood Blondes situation because of all the backlash and i'm guess because this is such a russo thing but i stand to be corrected i'm guessing during that short-lived first russo era they came back as standards and practices yes yes they so did. that is such a russo thing to to wheel out on screen in mm. in like defiance of he was like jose Mourinho before he was a jose Mourinho. he'd he'd air his grievances out in public in such a petty way and that is such a russo thing so i'm guessing it was him and miss hancock was their manager she uh ditched them and that's why she's about and that's why they're at odds with her and yeah i'm just running out of energy for as I speak. It's, <laughs> no one cares. But that, if, if one person cares, there you go. Thank you. You're welcome. So, I, I thought the best summation after the match is when they were in the midst of their kidnapping of Stacy, and she's not even, like, horrified. She's like, like what? Oh, come on, guys. And just, like, like, like she's, she's, like, fret. She's fretting. She's not mad. She's not scared. She's not frightened. She's just... <sighs> Which goes to show you know, what a threat Lane and Rave really were. Mild annoyance. Mild annoyance. That's the best way to put it. She's been okay. inco she was Sorry. inconvenienced. Incon yeah. <laughs> the inconvenient kidnapping. So um, after a few more pre-recorded backstage skits with Booker T and Billy Kidman, followed by an insane-sounding David Flair with Crowbar and Daphne, we see a video package showing us how the wall has turned against his mentor, Bam Bam Bigelow, and is kind of running running a mock through WCW and it is time for the third match Bam Bam Bigelow versus The Wall and uh, the first thing I noticed was uh, I re remembered how I never liked it when Bam Bam Bigelow wrestled in plain black gear in WCW and always much preferred the flames designs on his tights. Um, the action starts off fast with some intense brawling in the ring, heavy hitting clotheslines 
Um, nothing pretty, but it's effective and it tells a good story. Bigelow lands a top rope diving headbutt in the first minute of the match, which kind of says to me this isn't going too long. Um, for the second match in a row, we see a, a cactus clothesline where both men go over the top together. After this, they go off brawling into the entranceway area. Bigelow gets chokeslammed through a randomly situated table with two computer monitors on it. And I also forgot how massive computer monitors used to be 20 years ago. Um, the bell murder rings. weapons. <laughs> they are. They're enormous. Um, the, the bell rings for no discernible reason, and David Flair and Crowbar then run out to attack the wall, but he quickly regains the advantage while Bigelow is loaded onto a stretcher by EMTs. Wall and Crowbar then appear on a scaffold above the entranceway, and the wall chokeslams Crowbar off the scaffold. He lands on what I presume is a gimmicked part of the entranceway. Um <laughs> Crowbar is then stretched off. Oh, and he he'd already had a neck brace on him before this, I have to say. Um, while no announcements made in the arena or by the commentators, it would appear that Wall was disqualified for choke slamming Bigelow through the table. Justin, what do you uh, what were your thoughts on this one? Uh, well, I mean, it did the trick of making the wall look like a threat. Although he does look like James, if James Hetfield joined right to censor in the in this particular getup that he's wearing. Um, I will say the one thing that kind of blew the the angle was seeing just how fake the stage looked that Crowbar fell through. I mean, it was still a hell of a bump. He fell fell about 12 feet. I think they said 18, but let's, let's not, it's not good nuts here, Mark Madden. Well, I think it it started at 15 feet and then by the time they replayed it and referred to it later in the evening, it had gone up to 20 feet. That's (laughs) not like professional wrestling. I know, Liam. Who'd have thought it? Hyperbole. Give me a break. (laughs) But yeah, you see that it's like cardboard and a little bit of foam. And Shivani, I got to say during this, um, during the self-isolation, I've been listening to a lot of what happened when just syncing up the old pay-per-views with Conrad and Shivani and just. I have I have a deep appreciation for Tony Schiavone, but when he's caught, when when he's saying that the crowbar fell through plywood, I just gotta hang my head. When you're here's a nice close up of what appears to be craft paper and cardboard that that that, that poor Devin Storm fell through. It was still a hell of a bump though. He may have got a really bad paper cut. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it looks semi comfortable though. Semi-comfortable. Yeah, he, he was like Stacy Keebler, moldy inconvenienced. Indeed, yeah. the best summation of this entire pay-per-view was a mild inconvenience. Uncensored, where there's no rules, anything goes. The matches are brutal, and plenty of people will leave this building mildly inconvenienced. Inconvenience, yeah. Viewer discretion. Especially those who pay for front row. Oh, <laughs> but uh, it, it was what it was. And you're right, Dean. That table was just completely random with monitors. There's like no chairs at it. It's just no. it was like a display at like an office supply store. Like, <laughs> we had this monitor. It's on sale. It's just it's like why is that there? The brawl has left the arena and gone to Staples over the road. Yeah, <laughs> I'm shocked they didn't do that at some point as a concept, especially with the hardcore title and things like that. But yeah. was it was it just me, fellas, or was the, the the wall was really up for this? And I don't know if it was a combination of or, or one of the other or whether it was um the fact that he knew it wasn't going very long which <laughs> meant he could like burst his energy tank a bit or the fact that he knew he was uh being groomed for the money slot as much money as that is in 2000 with hogan 
and so was really busting his hump. But he he was just all over the place. I, I would have liked to have seen the Wall and Bam Bam Bigelow have a proper match, go a little, not ridiculously long, but I'd give them a good mm. eight to ten minutes and just have to tell them, right, go beat the shit out of each other and here's an actual fucking finish for you. Go and enjoy it. And speaking of that finish, uh, it's worth noting that this is around the time... You know, it was all the rage to have these really stupid, random, sometimes frightening uh, bumps. You know, you know yeah. every, every week at this stage, we've got Mae Young uh, being driven through tables by the Dudleys. And even more disturbing, ECW's pay-per-view this very month, Living Dangerously, had the New Jack Vic Grimes incident where they literally mm. just climbed up a scaffold and threw themselves off it for no fucking reason. So this was all the rage at them, and, and I'm so glad we're away from that. Well, and we still had Chris Canyon's fall at Slamberita come in the oh. same building where, where, where Owen Hart felt it was death a year earlier. Absolutely so tasteless. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, yeah, this this whole match, as you said, Liam, it was a brief match. The whole thing was really a backdrop for the angle with, with Crowbar highlighting how walls destroying everyone. And one thing I did like was how when... Um, they're they're wheeling the um the the stretcher the gurney into the ambulance. Tony Schiavone, in his serious voice, says, uh, "Well, uncensored has officially come to a stop." And then, as soon as he says that, uncensored continues uh, with Mean Gene interviewing <laughs> Brian Nobbs, um, who apparently uh, Brian Nobbs um, has got spiky hair, very much like because he's in a partnership with Dave Finley, I guess. But he's he appears to have no eyebrows and he's virtually unrecognisable until he opens his mouth. But um, mm. our well, our fourth match is is one of the uh, one of the great uh, because WCW moments because we have three people um, three counts simultaneously holding the hardcore title and they are all defending it against Brian Nobbs. Um, <laughs> Shane Helms has a plastic mask on to uh, protect a broken nose and it's explained and thankfully, you know, this is one of those occasions where WCW actually bothered to tell us what the rules are. Um, doesn't always happen, but they explain that Brian Nobbs has to beat all three men to regain his title. Um, so Nobbs comes out, disappears back stage, reappears a bit later with a trolley full of weapons, a rubbish bin, a fire extinguisher, chair, ladder, and so on. Yeah, all the usual suspects. Um, mm. After lots of hitting each other with weapons, three count take turns, climbing a ladder and splashing knobs, but uh, Shannon Wall misses. This leads to a knobs comeback where he places a chair over Helms' face, hits it with a broom, and pins him. One down, two to go. He then power bombs Evan Courageous out of the ring and through a table, pins him at ringside. It's now down to Nobbs v. Shannon Moore. Um, Nobbs picks Moore up for a slam, but Helms drop kicks him from the top rope. They slide over a table that was probably supposed to break, and Moore pins him. But the referee, Nick Patrick, who is uh, sporting a 70s-style moustache for no apparent reason, notices that Nobbs' foot was on the ropes and restarts the match. Um, and I do love the idea that you can hit people with weapons, you, eliminated people can still participate in the match, but the rope break rule still applies. Um, after a few moments, though, Nobbs kicks Moore to the canvas, climbs to the second rope, lands a bin-assisted splash to Moore for the pin, and becomes the new WCW Hardcore Champion in 6 minutes 51, as Tony Schiavone declares that Brian Nobbs has just brought back respectability to the WCW <laughs> Hardcore Division, where actually they just hit each other with rubbish bins. Justin. 
Uh, I actually wrote that exact quote in my notes here. Uh, <laughs> I'm very glad you caught that also because I, I may have been a fever dream on my part. Uh, I, I thought it was very ironic that you mentioned how they you know, explained the rules to everyone because, I mean, they did, but one person who didn't hear it was the sound guy because after Nob scored the first pinfall on Shane Helms, he started playing Nob's music. Maybe he was just hoping it was over. <laughs> so, someone, someone had to smarten him up and say, turn it off. Uh, this is actually the best match on the show to this point, which isn't saying much. I, it was entertaining. It was entertaining crap for what it was. I did like where Helms had the um, had the Lone Ranger mask on, which is a nice little uh, foreshadowing to his future as a superhero. Very true. Yes. He um, he did no sell the pit stop and acknowledge the hard camera that it had no effect on him. I did think that was pretty funny. If Twitter's told us nothing else, is that Shane Helms is hilarious. Yes. And him was way ahead of his time in terms of being a comedic presence in the ring. Very underappreciated. I mean, I thought it was fine for what it was, this match. It was just, it was, it was, it was hardcore crap, but it was entertaining enough hardcore crap. And it was fine. And I guess, I guess, um, it's another thing you know, of the time, of the era, Liam, because you know, we've talked about people being launched off high places just for the sake of it, and this is just hitting each other with things that make a nice sound just for the sake of it. Yeah, we're now a year removed from when there was a, a, a genuine enthusiasm about this genre. You think when there was that match, well, pretty much at the last Uncensored, Uncensored Night 9, Raven, Bam Bam Bigelow, Hardcore Hack, and they did a similar routine but they did it in much more of a chaotic way guys who are much more versed in it and it wasn't too long before the division was hijacked by guys like brian Nobbs who did the same lazy hit 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 all like all night every night um you you, you touched upon shane helms justin and yeah this for me is the point in the timeline where it was becoming just so obvious who the star of free count was and hint hint it wasn't the guy positioned in the front uh courageous had already bombed out with his old medusa angle and other stuff they put the cruiserweight title in it just wasn't working but he had the body compared to the other two i suppose they tried with it but no helms all day long and as we saw at the end of those things got made right a little bit and we've sung the praises of those later days especially the cruiserweight division i'm sure we'll get the chance to do that again one other thing i have to take umbrage with dean is you say about the, the the rope breaks being confusing in this what is confusing about requiring a legal finish to the match uh no he didn't get disqualified for for someone having their foot on the ropes, so, that's, so it's not no disqualifications. Uh, the only time it would be weird is if it was actually if they said it was falls count anywhere. Did they have any pinfalls outside? I can't even remember. Yeah, um, they're so vague yeah, as because, to whether um, or not it is falls count anywhere. Yeah, because they um he pinned um Evan Courageous at ringside on the outside. Mm. So if it's falls yeah. count anywhere, it seems a bit weird. But there was a recent was it uh, an early Dynamite AEW where oh who was it? It was a street fight. It might have been Jericho and Darby Allin, where everyone was getting up in arms about a, a rope break. It's like, well, the rules are, you know, no disqualifications, but you've got to beat your opponent. Yeah. So I, I think I that's what might put a bee in my bonnet, but yeah, full yeah. anywhere, fair enough. It just shows that the fact that I can't even recall whether or not they're they're running with the fucking fool's candy <laughs> part of it. <laughs> or if they're or if they're binning out off for now because they've just had someone fly off yeah. a off a massive platform onto a pile of photocopy paper. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just I just found it an amusing uh, irony, I suppose. Yeah. 
it's not really a lasting impression kind of show, is it? <laughs> oh, it will leave a few lasting impressions as we get on, but not for the better. No. no. Um, we then have a backstage interview with Mean Gene and the new Harlem Heat 2000, which is Stevie Ray and Big T, the former Ahmed Johnson in Case WWF. In point. Yep. Along with Jay Biggs, the former Clarence Mason in WWF, and uh, some other bloke called Cash, who was uh, Teddy Reed, a man who went nowhere in WWE but was enormous. Um, the former Ahmed does a promo, and I literally can't understand what he's saying. He's just shouting. Um, elsewhere, the lim- limousine that we saw at the beginning of the show is still parked up. No one's emerged from it. It is time for match number five, which is Booker T and Billy Kidman with Tory Wilson, um, who was his real-life fiance at the time, I think, uh, with Harlem Heat 2000 with Jay Biggs and Cash. So we have a video package to show the descent between Booker and Kidman. Um novelty to see tag teams that don't get along in WCW. Uh, Tory Wilson is rivaling Miss Hancock in the short skirt stakes. Um, meanwhile, Big T looks like he got lost on the way to the pharmacy and found the bakery instead. Uh, Jay Biggs joins the commentary booth. So that's the third commentate, guest commentator in five matches. Um, lots of action in this one, but it didn't seem to be flowing particularly well. Uh, lots of axe kicks on both sides, both Cash and Tory Wilson getting up on the apron to try and distract the ref. Um, Big T tries to dive over the guardrail um, from the crowd back into ringside and land on Kidman, but kind of comes up short and lands flat on his face. Um, the commentators still sell like he landed it, even if Kidman doesn't. Um, we get some semblance of a match structure as the heels then work over Kidman for a couple of minutes before he makes the tag to Booker, who cleans house. Um, the heels then double team Booker as the ref doesn't seem to be enforcing the one in one out rule. Uh, and we have another sort of sudden ending when Kidman comes back in, tries to do a sunset flip on Big T, which works when he's assisted by an axe kick from Booker in six minutes, 59 seconds. Justin, what do you make of this one? Billy Kid- Kidman and Booker were the MVPs of this show to this point because they, they got something watchable out of um, Ahmed, Ahmed squared here and Stevie Ray, who was never really anything special on the ring, but he was at least passable. Ahmed at this point is just so far gone, and I'd forgotten how big he'd gotten. <laughs> it looks like he's carrying triplets. He's, he, <laughs> he, he used to be buff Ahmed Johnson in WWE, the Pearl River powerhouse. Here he's trying to dive over the guardrail, and it's it's not a pretty sight. It's like watching Willie try to jump over uh, in free Willie trying to jump over that a reef of rocks, except he falls falls way short. Way short. I was expecting him to bounce back up when he landed. <laughs> and it was uh, <laughs> he kind of falls yeah. J T Smith short. You know what I mean? Oh Woo! god, boom, JT. boom, boom, boom. Minus. Minus the big welt on his eyebrow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I did like, as, as soon as the final pinfall was rendered, you see Jay Biggs getting up from behind a commentary table and he's smiling, even though his guy's lost. <laughs> great camera work, guys. I didn't notice that. Good spot. <laughs> Kidman, uh, Kidman was always an underappreciated wrestler and he held us together with duct tape and super glue, it seemed like. Yeah. Pl- Sorry, no, Jeff. just. I was playing a face in peril for a while because he's just selling for the two big guys. Booker comes in, cleans house. He does his thing. Of course, he's great also. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just two guys following the formula and doing a great job at it and, and end up being a watchable match as a result. Liam? 
Yeah, so I, I don't know if you remember, Dean, but we covered Super Bowl 2000, which was uh, the only other pay-per-view of this turgid, between Russo's, as Justin put it, Kevin Sullivan <laughs> and whoever else is still around, uh, brief era. We covered that. We had Billy Wood on with us, and that was when um, Cash made his debut, wasn't it? Because they, they had the match for the rights to the name. And you'll notice they, they call him Booker here. He, he can't be Booker T anymore. Uh, he comes out to really generic music because he's not allowed the Harlem Heat music. Uh, so the, the whole storyline is a bit of a mess. And I believe, uh, obviously, we didn't get to see the full fruition of it, kind of, thankfully. But had things not uh, done a 180 not long after this, this was the end of the... Booker versus the new Harlem Heat thing. Move on from that. And going by the post-match, they're very unsubtly trying to set up a situation where there'd be an issue between Booker and Kidman over Tory because they celebrate with a couple of group hugs and both times they do commentary all over it like stink on shit. Oh, look, she's hugging both of them. And... So, you know, you know where they're going with that. And I'm guessing it was their attempt to revive the storyline they were going to have with Kidman, Eddie Guerrero and Tory, which was during that first Russo era. And then obviously the radicals mm-hmm. happened. But that was the whole deal was going to happen there was that uh, Eddie and Kidman were going to feud over Tory. So I'm guessing they're attempting to revive that. And you can imagine that, you know, a, a a very accomplished sleazeball like Eddie, fair play. Booker T in that role? Uh, yeah. So, it saved us at the whole rebirth. True. Well, the matches uh, continue thick and fast with match number six, which is a Falls Count Anywhere match between Fit Finley and Vampiro. Um, there's no video package or anything for this one. We're going in to a Fool's Count Anywhere match cold. Um, is there, Liam, is there any kind of backstory here or have they just slung these guys to the match for the hell of it? Pretty much. They had a couple of to-dos on the on the weekly shows, I believe. Uh, Finley at this point is, you know, they, they end up slotting him in anywhere. He's he's quote-unquote a heel with knobs, but we've already seen knobs fighting for the, for the reputation of the hardcore division, as we'll see with this match and the aftermath. And uh, another match later on. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, apparently they're very interchangeable, those two bleach blonde tweeners yes. in camo. Fair enough. Well, they um, both men have casts on their arms. This is, we're told, due to the actions of the total package, and that'll all make sense a little bit later on. Um, after a couple of minutes, the match spills to the outside, where they brawl around ringside and then brawl into the crowd. And, yeah, we've we've mentioned ECW just um, earlier briefly there, but you can really see that influence, as we said, that hardcore wrestling influence on the American wrestling business at this point in time. Um, they then reach the concourse of the arena. Um, they reach the women's bathroom, followed quickly by the men's bathroom once Finley realizes his mistake. Um, and uh, there's apparently one of the cubicles is, is occupied. I just thought, imagine taking a shit whilst Finley, Vampire, and a TV <laughs> camera burst into your toilet. Yeah, I was the fan in Cubicle in Trap 2, yeah. Um, they're fighting through the fans in a badly lit part of the concourse, so then go outside the arena in a 
which is even more badly lit. It's really hard to actually see what's going on here. Um, not as bad as like the junkyard battle roar, but still pretty bad. Um, Vampiro manages to hit the nail in the coffin in a dimly lit arena, which, which is, I think, near a bathroom, to claim the win in eight minutes thirty-eight. Main, sorry, to claim the win in eight minutes thirty-eight seconds of what Mark Madden describes as a true uncensored match. Uh, what do you think of this one, Justin? Well, if I were Finley and Vampire, I'd be offended that the guy couldn't hold it in until he got to the Mamelukes Harris's match. <laughs> um, I thought it was a pretty enjoyable match, although toward the end it was obviously marred by the darkness and like the rave-like atmosphere. Couldn't really see what was going on. It was a unique visual, but it was just hard to follow. Mm. I mean, it's still two pretty good brawlers just having a run-of-the-mill brawl. There's some good spots like. Like Vampiro going over the guardrail at one point, kind of spiraled over it. Uh, the the bathroom stall jump, I think that was Vampiro. Like did like a pull up and jumped on the Finley at one point. That was pretty awesome. It, I did notice toward the end that it had the fiend lighting to it, which gave me flashbacks to uh, <laughs> Hell in the Cell yes. last year. Yes, I saw a tweet of yours about that. Yes, <laughs> yes, not not good uh, flashbacks, mind you. No. It was fine for what it was, which is the highest praise I can give to virtually anything on this show. I did laugh at Mark Madden's Uranagi pun, though. That'd be Mark Madden said. Mark Madden said a good move for the bathroom would be a Uranagi. Oh. not the greatest wordplay in the world, but I, I did laugh. I need something to amuse me. <laughs> I, I missed that one. I have to say, but, no, fair fair play to Madden on that one. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, Liam? So, something, something, Mark Madden, something, something, toilet humor. There's, <laughs> yeah. a, there's a there's a follow up there, and I just can't be fair putting it together. Um, yeah, and it it feels harsh to go in two footed on this match, but it yeah, it definitely fit in with the uncensored tradition, as Madden put it, of being a absolute mess that's impossible to follow considering we've had <laughs> such luminary matches as the king of the road match in 95 the uh <laughs> the triple decker cage that we had the misfortune of covering very early on in our in our podcast tenure uh, yep. since 96 we've had rick flair in a dress getting pinned in a match he wasn't in the list goes on and on and on and on and this is right up there with it but yeah these, these two should be able to have a very very Bigelow Wall-esque beat the tire of each other. That will keep things ticking over in the mid-card thing. It it would probably have been that case if we could have seen more of it. It was just so badly lit. It was so all over the shop. And the, we, we've slated the production on this show off enough. Hey, we slate WCW production for shits and giggles. Hey, play, give us plenty of material. Uh, and on this instance, it's... It's just a broken record, I think. But yeah, it seemed like because a lot of people were wondering if Vampiro would be the next uh, sort of radical style guy. We've just had a mass exodus of people leave the company because the mm. idea of Kevin Sullivan booking them gave, made them break out in hives, uh, given like 98, 97, things like that. And people were wondering this time if, if Vampiro was going to be the next one because he was he was getting over. He'd have certain matches where he was just shit hot and so charismatic. But he'd also have certain matches like this and worse where he was all over the place, I thought. So, but, but people were digging him and they were wondering if he would get the chance to mingle higher above the card than the Fit Finleys. And... There was 
it looked like there was going to be some encouraging news on that later on in the show. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've, I've just I'm just thinking this when we're talking about you know them brawling and the, the lighting and that. I I've just had a, a, a recollection of um going back a few years, but when I was booking RQW and we were doing the TV taping, and we had um there was a match between um cheerleader Melissa and Sweet Soraya um. And it was actually it was the match where Soraya injured her knee and was out for the best part of a year, actually. But the whole idea of the match was like a wild brawl where Melissa attacks her in the entranceway and they would brawl all around the ringside and stuff, but they would never actually make it into the ring. And we realized that there was a fire door that went out into a little cul-de-sac that wouldn't have any uh, traffic in it. And we we're going to get them to do a bit of a brawl there. But the first thing you do is you look outside, you know, you see if there's a place for the cameras, you see if it's safe for people to be in. And then you think, what time of day is this going to be happening? And is there going to be enough light? And if it's, as I'm talking now, it's pitch black outside. If that was the case, you wouldn't do it because you realize no one would see it. But it seems that that, uh, that didn't uh, enter the thought process here. You never, had never them at thinking. <laughs> yes. Um, so match number seven it is a no disqualification match for the WWE World Television sorry World Tag Team Titles, um, and the NWO music plays. And I'm thinking, what headliner is this? And then I realise it's the Harris Brothers. Yes, this is the Harris Brothers v Mamelukes match that that man in the stalls should have waited for. Um, <laughs> it's safe to say I think that this isn't the glory period of the WWE World Tag Team Championship. Um, Big Vito one thing I noticed was that Big Vito has very carefully plucked eyebrows and I've I've come to the conclusion that maybe he does drag on his days off Um, we now have Disco Inferno uh, joining the commentary booth that's four times in seven matches if you're keeping count Um, the Marmalukes are in charge for most of the opening five minutes the Harris brothers then take off using the temper of the Marmalukes against them by riling the man on the tag rope to distract the ref it's basic and unspectacular but nothing offensively bad compared to some of the matches we've seen I guess Um, finally Johnny the Bull makes the hot tag to Vito who cleans house on both brothers Vito lands a top rope elbow drop for a two count um, Disco later enters the ring, nails one of the Harrises with a tag team belt right in front of the ref, but it's no DQ, so that's fine. This only gets a two count. A few moments later, Vito gets nailed in the back of the head with the very same tag team belt. The Harris brothers then hit their double team H bomb to become the new world tag team champions in eight minutes 45 seconds. Justin, what were your thoughts on this one? Well, Mike Tanay lied when he said, and I'm, I read this as an exact quote. This has been one of the great stories of the year 2000. And I had no <laughs> idea what in the hell he was talking about. Because it was just a very dull but workmanlike match. I didn't even know who the baby faces were. Because on the one hand, NWO equals bad guys. But on the other hand, one team has Disco Inferno as their manager. So who's the good guys? Yep. <laughs> it was, it's, it's every Harris Brothers match ever where you just don't give a damn what's happening. Just going to do their usual power moves and not really sell. And it built to a finish. It didn't linger super long. It was, it was whatever. Oh. Liam, do, do you know what? I might be alone with this, but this, I'll, I'll, I'll be alone in my explanations for what I'm about to say. Uh, <laughs> but this was actually amidst all the weird, strange, and depressing results 
on this show. This was actually this bummed me out the most because uh, 20 years on, it might be difficult to remember, and it was a cup of coffee, but there was a glimmer of the Mama Lukes actually being the antidote to that tag team division problem WCW had. They came together with that goofy mafia rip-off storyline from you-know-who, guess who. Uh, but as a, as a tag team, they started to get a bit of chemistry. They had a, they had a good little thing going. They had some distinct moves. I love that hip-toss powerbomb they do. They had a few other things about them. They put everything in, you know, the whole... They, they, they just went... They threw themselves in headlong into the characters. And even on the apron, they're energetic. And, you know, that stands out like a sore thumb, given half the roster at this time. And I think part of the reason they were kind of positioned as the baby faces here was because they had just naturally started to pick up those reactions and there was a there was a smattering from what was left of this crowd which is like a dismally low crowd as it is it's been a bit uh whittled out of it by some of the matches we've already had uh there there are some good positive reactions still for them i the, the whole no disqualification thing was was especially considering all the other stipulations I know it's uncensored but it seemed like such a weird tacked on thing uh, I can only speculate that common sense would have been that the no disqualification was to allow Disco Inferno to solve the one loose end that Justin elaborated on and to cost the Mamelukes the titles and then so he would then get booted out and that would cement the Mamelukes' faces maybe chasing the titles back but even mm. then, even with that making slight more sense of it, it's still the fucking Harris's getting the tag titles, and that's just inexplicable. How they could have had them win this match, I don't know. But then uh, these two teams faced off in, a, in an even more random pairing without the titles involved at um, sold out just two months before this, and the Mamelukes won that one with a you know with a fucked finish to to protect the Harris's. Oh, I'm getting a bit. Of- bile in my mouth just saying that um, I do also think that they um, this was the main event of um, a WCW house show this year we, in somewhere like Birmingham or Manchester yeah, where we people up, didn't we? Yeah. yeah people left very unhappy because basically none of the stars it. were there yeah actually finished the show with that because uh, this was well documented in Power Slam magazine wasn't it the, the, the ticket that you'd buy and you actually you know you've got it on you as you go in you still get your ticket stub and there's pictures of Sting pictures Pictures of Goldberg and none of them. Jack Hart and Kevin Nash, I remember. Never any plans for most of those to even show up. I think maybe maybe Sting and Luger were, and they had like a five-minute match or something. Luger was on, and Bret Hart did a promo. Because he was injured by that point, yeah. But yeah, so apparently the Harrises needed their win back. The, uh, the the new world order is absolute lowest ebb needed the tag titles, but I'll defend to the hilt that the Mamelukes early 2000s had something about them, and I enjoyed watching them. It's a shame they got cut off at the legs. So wait, I just had a thought. Was that the last hurrah of the NWO and WCW? Was the Harris Twins winning the tag belts in a mostly heatless match from the Mamelukes? We'd have to check. I think they did two more episodes... Well, yeah, I mean, no. it like last big pay-per-view moment because yeah. right after this we have the we have the hard reset with Millionaires Club versus you know the the New Blood, so the NWO is pretty much written out from there. Pay, mm-hmm. Pay-per-view definitely, as I said, there's just because <laughs> I think there was a spring breakout episode, and there was one where 
Uh, I think you had Sid and Hogan setting up to be the next program. Yippee. So, so let's let's just let's just position this from from what Justin has very well pointed out, and I was blissfully unaware of. The NWO starts with Hogan joining Hall and Nash at Bash at the Beach '96 to the greatest heel turn of all time, with the fans filling the ring with litter. And it ends with the Harris brothers winning the tag belts at Uncensored 2000. Hey, now you're you're overlooking Jeff Jarrett in a world title match. Now, I'm sure true. that drags it up several notches from from oh. the point you're trying to make about the Harrises being like a a damp squib of a finish. No, 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 no. Jeff Jarrett's in the world title match. It's all going to be good. Fair enough. Well, well, it could be worse. It could be uh, Kevin Nash's uh, quadricep ex- exploding on an episode of Raw during the. Super NWO reboot, which everyone so fondly remembers. Oh man! <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I seem to remember the uh, the uh, kind of viral "Make WWE Rings Safer" campaign after that, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> he blew his quad from just walking across the ring to make a tag, didn't he? Just, just a casual stride. Yeah. Okay, so um, we then are told that Fit Finley what has an important message to um, to convey to us all, and I'm kind of thinking, yeah, what's this groundbreaking angle? Ask for be? refunds. <laughs> Sorry about this show, everyone. Yeah, I no, take full responsibility. If, yeah, let's face it. If Finley demanded a refund, you'd give him a refund. Um, yeah. But he's just basically talking about how he lost to Vampiro, um, fair and square, and Vampiro now has his respect. So that that is literally it. That is um, kind then... of important later, by the way. If you're saying there's no storyline <laughs> continuity in WCW, we'll see later on where that's vital. Of all the things they couldn't string together and all the oversights they made in storyline continuity, you'll see how massively important it is that they stuck Fit Finley in front of that interview position for 30 seconds. Okay. You'll see. Just at at this point in time, it seems the way it's been built up was a bit odd, but okay, I'll give you that one. We'll see what happens. Um, So we then have a Luger and Flair promo that doesn't really say anything um and then a video package chronicling the history of dustin rhodes and terry funk um featuring lots of chair shots to 55 year old terry funk's head as well as funk coming out with a raw chicken in a nappy which he throws at rhodes um i've concluded that terry funk doesn't care about listeria so this is match number eight it's a bull rope match between dustin rhodes and terry funk interestingly dustin rhodes calls himself the American Nightmare in his pre-match promo. Mm. Um, Funk comes out with another raw chicken. And I do seem to remember in that same house show in London from that run that we were just talking about, he uh, he also had a raw chicken there, which he threw down the aisle at Dustin Rhodes. It was very much a recurring joke yes. in his feud. And I don't understand the... I think they just thought, you know what, we're going to use this as a fucking weapon. And we'll say it's Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> Yeah, probably Terry Funk found it funny, and that was that was it then. Yeah, because this um this this chicken has dusty written on in permanent marker. Um, so then uh, a man in a chicken suit enters the ring, hits Dustin, and runs out. And Funk over the microphone says that that's Dustin's baby brother, who of course would be Cody. Um, Dustin then runs up the ramp where he's punched by Ch- Terry Funk's chicken-covered fist, and. Uh, this, to me, is the worst case of poultry vase violence since the Christmas special episode of Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge. Niche reference there. You might have Love to... Love it. 
partridge <laughs> reference after that bullseye reference it, it's um it's a british comedy it's magnificent you'll uh you'll we'll, we'll send you some youtube links justin Sounds um, good. five Dean, minutes Dean, in um partridge bullseye on the last pay for you what's next last of the fucking summer wine <laughs> Only fools and horses, yeah. Um, five minutes in, and they're still not joined together with the ball rope. They're just using it as a weapon. Um, I don't know, maybe those are the rules, because in this match, unlike the uh, hardcore match, they haven't actually bothered to explain the rules. The match is, as you'd expect, a brawl with the two choking each other with the rope, hitting each other with the cowbell. Finally, we get the two combatants joined at the wrist by the ball rope. Um, the man in the chicken suit re-enters the ring to attack Rhodes. He's quickly dispatched while chicken sound effects play from somewhere within his suit. Um... Funk then grabs the mic, declares that he's changing the rules to an I quit match. Um, when referee Billy Silverman disagrees, Funk hits him with the cowbell and throws him out of the ring. Um, after repeatedly hitting him with the cowbell, Rhodes says he quits to buy himself some time because Terry Funk then thinks he's winning the match. Um, they finally explain the rules. Um, Rhodes nails a distracted Funk with the cowbell as Funk argues with the ref. Rhodes then pile drives Funk onto the cowbell for the match-winning pinfall in nine minutes and one second. They continue fighting after the match finishes as the commentators state that the Rhodes-Funk war that has been going on with their respective families for 20 years is not over. Justin, did you enjoy this one? Not particularly. And I kind of had high hopes for for this match, given how the show had transpired to this point. I did think it was interesting that a week before this, Dustin's father was in a bull match on an ECW pay-per-view against Steve Carino. Yes. It says kind of weird how that ties together. And when, uh, I did have to wonder when the guy in the chicken costume came out and said, it, it, it's, it's Dustin's baby brother. He was just short enough to where I was thinking, maybe that is 13 year old Cody. Who knows? It's not that far from Georgia. They were in Miami. Yeah, certainly possible. I wonder who it was in the costume, though. Well, Are you going to ask game, Cody on Twitter, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> he, if I care enough. Yeah, I mean, he has <laughs> to get tagged in in the official when we tweet out the episode and the link. We're going to have to say, look, here's here's Cody Rose making his debut. I did oh, think God, it was apropos was. for the show that Terry Funk tried to change the rules as he went along. Cause, <laughs> yeah. We have, we have a no DQ match. Oh, it's no DQ. Well, we'll find out with two minutes left in the match. and It's just the uh, show's a mess, and this was very indicative of it. I'd forgotten how much I'd written Dustin Rhodes off at one time. He's just like, well, he's past prime. He's not what he once was, but that happens to a lot of guys. Then last year, he has the match of his life with his brother at double or nothing. It's just you never know how how something's going to shake out in wrestling. They write somebody off and and they come hell two years after this. Him and Booker had the best comedy tag team possibly in wrestling history. I was oh, about yes. to say actually, it's funny you say about people writing him off here. He then, as you said, he bounced back and then in TNA about 2007, 2008, <laughs> he was a massive shell of himself and that was a great. He, he, I think he said since he was having like big personal problems at that time, right? And that was a real low point in his career. So he's done this comeback many times. He has bounced back and yeah, it's great to see him doing well right now in AEW. But um, absolutely, this match. Yeah, I I would agree at face value about this match being shit 
being a mess, mm. being a, a, a bit of an embarrassment. And yes, very much fitting in, in, in that line with the rest of the show and most uncensored, to be honest. But I'm going to have to say, I actually found it very perversely entertaining. Uh, I, I did as well. I, I, I just love agree. the batshit mental Terry Funk. I mean, I know I'm biased, but I, I thought it was fantastic. Do you, do you know what, Dean? Here's a, considering we've we've had a lot of requests and we've done a lot of 91-92 pay-per-views recently, understandable, because that is, that, is, that is classic WCW to a lot of people. Uh, and that means we've covered a lot of Cactus Jack and Abdullah the Butcher. And even as recently as that last paper with Doug Williams, Super Bowl 2, we were saying that was a bit of a low point. I think that they, so I think their act was starting to run its course. What they did on the show was, a, was actually a, a massive clusterfuck. But we said then, even then, we give it a pass because it's fucking Cactus and Abdullah. And that's how I, I think Terry Funk is very much in that same category, which is fitting mm-hmm. given his long links with, with Mick Foley. But I was kind of hoping this would lead to a, a recurring thing where every time Funk has even just a regular match with a jobber on Nitro, he would grab the mic and announce that he's changing it mid-match to an I quit match. And the commentators will say, no, he's not the commissioner anymore. He has no power. This is not an equipment. They could even prepare a scroller on the screen where it says, ignore Terry Funk. This is not an equipment. <laughs> it's a regular match. This scene, oh, but that's how I would have booked it. It would have been hilarious. You just, I think. I just had a little memory of Terry Funk in this time period. I can't remember whose shoot interview it was. It was one of those RF shoot videos from very early in the decade era. And of, and of this millennium, they said pre Predator Russo bust was, or uh, pre <laughs> that I'm sure. I, it may have been a, it may have been Dusty. I can't remember. It, it was someone who was in the office at the time for WCW, and they said that Vince Russo was was asking around to try and figure out how much it would take to bribe the fire marshal to let Terry Funk burn the arena down. <laughs> uh. I can't remember. I can't remember the exact specifics of the story, but I remember, but that is like seared in my memory. And, I, and you try to picture it, you can almost see Terry going along with it. That wouldn't have been anything special to us. I mean, they did that at the start of every Nitro early on. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Well, I, I always remember the story about um, when Brian Pillman was doing the loose cannon gimmick and he had this idea of um, invading the pitch at the Super Bowl and chaining himself to the goalpost. And they mm-hmm. said that everyone he spoke to was like, dude, don't do this. That's a stupid idea. You're going to pr- you'll go. You probably won't get to the pitch. You'll get arrested. You'll go to prison. And the only person who said to Brian Pillman, yeah, great idea. Go for it. Was Terry Funk. <laughs> I totally Match. believe that. <laughs> well, oh man well terry would have probably had, like the branding iron on him he would have been able to ward the cops off long enough to get up to get onto the field <laughs> fantastic okay so uh we're backstage with mean gene again uh oh he's doing a backstage promo with sid vicious hopefully we're not live pal um <laughs> sid declares that he'll watch his own back um, doesn't really say much else. We then see a video package of the recent history of Sting and the total package, as Lex Luger is now known. Uh, we see how Luger's been putting people's arms inside a steel chair and stomping on them, which is how Finley and Vampira had casts on their arms. And
And interestingly, of course, the first person whose arm was broken by Luger was Sting. So match number nine, a Lumberjacks with Casts match. The total package with Elizabeth takes on Sting. Um, Luger gets on the mic and sincerely <clears throat> apologizes to all the Lumberjacks for breaking their arms. He then brings out his own Lumberjacks, the Harris Brothers and the Harlem Heat 2000. Um, Finally, Sting comes out to a decent reaction. Luger jumps Sting the moment he enters the ring. Sting turns the tables and Luger rolls out to the side where his lumberjacks are standing. Um, later on, Luger begs off and pulls Sting out of the ring and again on the side where his lumberjacks are standing. Then Tank Abbott, without a cast, comes down and decks Doug Dellinger, the head of security, <coughs> before just walking back to the entranceway. I'm glad he didn't bring his knife. That's true, yes. <laughs> You're gonna, you're gonna cut Dillinger's beard off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the lumberjacks then start brawling on the entranceway, and now we've just got a regular match with no lumberjacks except for Vampiro. Um, Ric Flair then comes to the ringside with a chair. Flair takes out Vampiro before getting in the ring. He chops Sting. Sting no sells it, and Stinger splashes Flair. Stop me if you've heard this before. <laughs> Um, Sting hits a stinger splash on Luger, but Elizabeth hits Sting with a baseball bat. She's then dragged off to the backstage area by Jimmy Hart, who is brandishing Hulk Hogan's weightlifting belt. I hope you're keeping up with all of this. Luger gets Sting up in the torture act, but Vampiro runs in, hits Luger in the back of the knee with a baseball bat. Sting executes the scorpion death drop for the three count in just seven minutes and one second. Yes, all of that happened in seven minutes. Did you have you caught your breath just? Justin, give us your thoughts on that one. Well, the match sucked, but the three best things that happened on this show all happened within the confines of this match. One of which you mentioned was just Tang Abbott randomly walking out and punching <laughs> Doug Dillinger in the face. <laughs> I, I almost fell out of my chair watching that. It, just, it made me so happy to see. I don't know why. I even hate Doug Dillinger. <laughs> the, the other fun parts were was Dillinger kicking Luger on the floor and Shivani marking out. Like he, like the one thing he genuinely cared about in this show was seeing Doug Dillinger do anything. <laughs> and the, and the other parts before the match when Jimmy Hart comes out with his cast and he's pounding his cast like menacingly. It's like it's Jimmy Hart. He's five foot three and he's a hundred and two pounds. And we're supposed to be like scared of this glorified wiener dog in sunglasses trying to be tough. It was. <laughs> I I laughed. It, it it was all terrible, but I laughed. Yeah, I might. Yeah. So I was just going to say I did, I did wonder why because I don't I don't think Jimmy Hart was actually wearing his sunglasses. It's the first time I've seen him at ringside without sunglasses, and I realised it was because he was getting involved in the, uh, in the action here, and probably didn't want to drop them or break them. <laughs> Must have been uh, prescription it's... sunglasses. <laughs> oh. But um, yeah. So thinking about Jimmy Hart with that cast on, it it makes me think of the times where while. I, as Justin said about the whole working from home thing, I do a lot of the same. And I've got my little daughter here, nearly four, Isabel. And it reminds me of all the times where she'll run up to me and want to play and she'll over-enthusiastically tap me on the head with her princess wand or something. And, you know, those those things are, you know, they're obviously like pretty heavy set. And if someone, even a child, like gives you a little tap with it, you'll feel it. And you're like, oh, what was that? Uh, but then you'll shrug it off and tell them, like, don't do that again. And that is literally how you react to Jimmy Hart trying to hit you full pelt with a cast, isn't it? <laughs> so what are you doing, dude? Don't, don't do that again. Come on, be better. 
that would literally be your reaction, surely. Um, the scary part about... It was... Oh, sorry, gone. I was saying, you could tell it wasn't actually plastic because he'd, he'd been dragging his arm to the ring. He'd been anchored down by it. <laughs> you could tell, tell it was a bit more composite material. Yeah, he should have got Brian Nobbs to carry him or something like that. <laughs> Put him no, re- return the favour from all the times that Hogan Hart and carried him. Boom, boom, chew. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so... That bit of continuity I was I was going to refer to, you'll notice that both Vampiro and Finley, as you said, Dean, were victims of the cast attacks, and mm-hmm. they've been given this placeholder feud just to kill some time for the two of them and just to fill another slot in this already rammed, rushed pay-per-view mess. Uh, but they needed them to be part of the babyface side of it. Uh, a couple of matches later, so they've, 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 I can only presume that's the main reason they've done this whole thing. All right, you you beat me, I respect you, blah blah. blah from Finley is to not make it look like shit. And at this point, you'd wonder why those that would bother, given all the other um, continuity lapses they've had and the things they just completely forget about, that they've gone to the trouble of incorporating this one in and making sure that loose end is tired. But I've got to say, as much as the match was all over the shop. Um, the, the the booking, the setting of it, it was I really enjoyed because this this concept is something you could do for a grudge match. It's very mid south esque, in fact. It's you know it's something you could easily make happen in a decent feud between two people who are not either completely over the hill in one case and massively disinterested in the other. Uh, I, I like the whole thing of it, even the whole aspect of having the hill, you know, pay in storyline is paying off these these other hills, these you know, mercenaries to put fake casts on and and, and back him up a bit. The, the whole story I've been breaking arms, you could do that in a situation that's not uh, absolutely dire. So it's a shame it was wasted on this, because right now we're going through the early '96 watch-alongs and we're very much enjoying the the Sting Luger tag team and all the all the nuances and and balances mm-hmm. of that. Back back during oh, a, a much more heady day of of those two. But yeah, at this point the thing is is long gone, long overshot. We don't want to see these two in the ring against each other anymore. And I'm I'm, I'm actually surprised that Sting ended up being quite fucking good in TNA it just showed it in this case it really was motivation mm. mm-hmm. and opponents mm. yes mm. okay so we're just about to see who's in the limo parked outside when we're told that there's been a change in format and we cut to a shot of Jeff Jarrett walking backstage towards the ring with three shall we say well endowed female accomplices uh, this really was the era of I guess WCW just chucking tons of random women in there to accompany wrestlers to the ring um, Mike Tanay says that the next match was meant to be the Hogan Flair strap match um, but it, it's been changed and we then get a gloriously hokey segment where Sid is set in the backstage area and is told by someone that his match is on now so it is time match number 10 for the world heavyweight title match Jeff Jarrett against Sid Vicious. Here comes Michael Buffer. I was then wondering, is he going to announce two matches? Is he going to get paid double? But we'll find out about that later. Um, One of Jarrett's beautiful women of the NWO, the future major guns, Tylin Buck, nearly falls over in her heels on the entrance ramp. Um, Jarrett is the current US champion, but it's the world title of Sid Vicious that's on the line here. Um, 
Jarrett appears to promise that the women with him will take their tops off if he wins the title tonight. I think I mentioned earlier that it was a different time in 2000. Um, according to Buffer, Sid is recognised as one of the greatest big men of all time, uh, which is a boast I don't even think Sid's own mum would agree with. Um, he does sound like he's getting one hell of a reaction from the crowd, however, but I'm not sure how much of that is legit, how much has been piped in, because the actual movement of the crowd doesn't necessarily uh, match up with that. The match spills to ringside within the first minute um, where Sid places Jarrett on the commentary table and pours water on him, which is obviously the ideal thing to do around lots of electrical equipment. Um, they then brawl around the building, which we've already seen in the Bigelow War match as well as the Finley Vampiro match. The Harris brothers appear again and start beating up Sid while Jarrett distracts the referee, Nick Patrick. Um, Jarrett nearly has Sid beaten with a sleeper hold, but his armor he drops twice. Sid then gets a close two count after Jarrett accidentally gets run headfirst into the world title belt, the one the Harris's was holding up on the apron. Sid goes for a choke slam, but Jarrett boots him in the groin. Uh, Nick Patrick gets caught with Jarrett's elbow, but then Jarrett smacks uh, Patrick's head into the buckle for good measure. This allows the Harris brothers to throw Jarrett his guitar, which he waffles Sid over the head with. Jarrett calls down the for another ref and Slick Johnson the NWO ref comes down but he gets yanked out of the ring by Hulk Hogan who bumps Jarrett and the uh, Harris brothers around like they're nothing. He then hits the big boot and leg drop on Jarrett pulls Sid over on top and Nick Patrick counts to three to give Sid the Hogan assisted victory in 7 minutes 36 it's as if the Royal Rumble of 92 never happened. Uh, then Scott Steiner runs in and nails Hogan in the back with a guitar as the commentators assume that he is the insurance policy that was in the limo all along as we haven't seen him in months. So Hogan is laid out before his strap match. Flair then runs to the ring, puts the strap on Hogan's wrist. I guess our main event is happening, but we'll pause things there and just cover this match. Sid v. Jarrett, what did you make of this one, Justin? Well, it was nice of them to tour the crowd where we could see all the empty seats on the hard camera side. <laughs> it's like, it like 4,000 people here in this 20,000-seat arena, which is embarrassing. It was, uh, it was a lot of smoke and mirrors in this match, especially for a seven-minute match. What I understand is if Scott Steiner – it was this insurance policy that was in the, in the limousine. And he's, been, he's been parked out there all night. Why is he late getting to the ring for this match after Jared has already lost – he counts time with Steiner math. Ah, oh, that's true. Nine days a week. Yeah. That's uh. When you add Sid was... Vicious to the mix. Well, then you have uh, half the time that you do. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. It's like a it's a mixtape of all the greatest hits. It's brilliant. <laughs> all the greatest shits. <laughs> it's it was um. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors for a seven-minute match, especially one that wasn't even good. It it was it was very much a product of its era. You, you almost felt like Russo was booking this, but it didn't have his panache to it. Yeah, it, it's absolutely incredible to think, as Dean mentioned, you've got the hill, the apparent head of the NWO, uh, for, because no one else is left to lead it up presumably uh but basically it's it, until steiner comes out it's Jarrett, the harrises the girls which is yeah tyleen buck midasia and shakira i think at this point i did wonder if that was midasia 
Yes. It was because it was it was two of them when they when she transitioned just to Scott Steiner there were two of them, and then they shit can Shakira they figured that Midasia was enough, uh, so fair play. Um, but yeah, so this this is what the NWO is. But you've got it, clearly they're they're the hills. Jeff Jarrett is a hill, and he's out there promising what what little live crowd there is that the girls are going to strip if he wins. So the the world champion top baby face Sid is already facing the fact that he's got a guy turning the live crowd against him for that. Then you've got this storyline with with Hulk where they're setting up where you know he's been shafted from the main event slot. Hulk has come and single-handedly won the match for him. Hulk Hogan, especially considering his reputation, Hulk Hogan, in storyline even, is is hot-dogging and grandstanding, as Randy Savage always used to accuse him of. Uh, and, yeah, in any normal social situation, Hulk Hogan is the one in the wrong. But they are setting up for, very next night on Nitro, for Sid to turn heel on Hogan, to be the heel for what would have been, inevitably, Hogan winning the title at a canter at Spring Stampede, had divine intervention not changed things. So, um, it's a really weird dynamic on everything. And to that extent, it's kind of merciful that the match was short. Yeah, but it's uh, it just reeks of the time period. And after nine matches that were mostly underwhelming on this show, this didn't exactly boost it, did it? No, but at least at least this whole shuddering prospect of having Jeff Jarrett in World Championship matches on pay-per-views, at least the uh, reboot will allow them to learn their lesson about that. Well, at least make them a little bit better because Jarrett's going to be in the main event scene for much of the year. Yeah, I, I needed like a, a hashtag S on that, didn't I? I needed massive sarcasm <laughs> alarm. I, I need one of those when I walk down the street, to be fair. But yeah, he would he would be festooned over it for several months, and the only point it looked remotely half decent, or in my opinion, was when he put Booker T over. Because those two can put a match together, but even then there was uh, we covered New Blood Rising. That whole thing was a shower of shit uh, very early mm. on, and just so many things about were found. You can see why the company was on its last legs by the end of this year. Sixty million dollars loss, everybody. Yeah. Um, so this our final match is we've we've segged straight from match ten to match eleven. It's the Indian strap match, which I'm then thinking, isn't this sort of similar to the bull rope match? Uh, um, it, ding, but, ding, ding, ding. It's, yep. it's, it's the Yappa Pie Indian the strap The Yappa Pie I'm sure you have saw the... You, you must have seen the infamous interview segments with Hulk Hogan. Please tell me you have. No. Oh. This has passed me by. Really? This has been everything from Botchamania to most other tongue-in-cheek. Well, I say it's passed me by. I could very well have watched it and forgotten about it. Hashtag five concussions. <laughs> yep. Yeah, this was your chance to get that reference in. Fair play. Um, yeah, I will send you it over afterwards. I'm shocked you didn't watch it. Uh, as part, I, should, I should have given you a nudge, really. But but yeah, this is the infamous Yappa Pie strap match. Okay, so Hogan v. Flair. Um, Shivani informs us that the way to win is to touch all four corners in succession. Um, 
Mark Madden asks why everything has to revolve around Hulk Hogan, which is probably a question we're all asking ourselves right now. Um, so our main event in the year 2000 has a combined age of 97. Um, but this was the last ever singles match between Flair and Hogan in WCW. Um, a minute or so into the match, Hogan has stopped selling the guitar shot and is beating up Flair like he usually does. Hogan takes off his weightlifting belt and whips Flair with it, despite the fact that they're connected together with a leather strap. Um, Hogan corners Flair, does the old punches in the corner routine. Flair is now bleeding and begging off from Hogan. Outside the ring, Flair's lying on, uh, later on outside the ring, Flair is lying on the floor and Hogan invites Jimmy Hart to whip Hogan a couple of, uh, whip Flair a couple of times, which he does with great enthusiasm. And so, you know, this is really a show where Jimmy Hart's getting his licks in. Um, Hogan is beating the hell out of Flair and I'm just wondering where the intrigue is. And just as I'm wondering that, Lex Luger appears and smacks Hogan over the head with a steel chair to help his ally Flair. And now Hogan is bleeding too. Jimmy Hart enters the ring, uh, but gets punched by Flair. Flair is now dragging Hogan around the ring, touching two corners of the ch- crowd chant for Hogan. Flair gets a foreign object out of his trunks, hits Hogan in the jaw. He goes for a pin, even though he can't win like that. Hogan kicks out and hulks up. He does the old punches and big boot routine. He then drags Flair across to four corners, bef- but before Luger runs in, but Luger is quickly dispatched with a big boot. Um, Hogan then leg drops Flair and pins him, and the ref signals for the bell, and then Hogan remembers the rules of the match, which everyone else seems to have forgotten, and touches the fourth and final corner and actually does win the match. And Jesus Christ, what have I just watched? What did we just watch, Justin? It was... Well, from a work standpoint, Hogan and Flair were actually trying, you know, in spite of their ages, they're going to do so much. It, w- it was unnecessarily convoluted, though. And what was more disheartening to me was after all the years of Hogan versus Flair, the big dream match, you know, we, we, we didn't get it at WrestleMania 8. We got it at Bash to Beach 94. It did a huge buy rate for the, for the company. This was, you know, Hogan versus Flair was always the big thing that the after magazines would always, you know, Mm. You know, rhapsodize about what would happen if Hogan faced Flair and here it is in front of 4,000 mostly disinterested fans in Miami, Florida. I mean, that on a show of Sting and Luger, this is like, you know, it's like one night we can barely stand. And it's, uh, it was just very indicative of how far behind the times they were. And, uh, I mean, and they bled for this match. It's like, for what? Yeah, I mean, it's it's noticeable that when we've been doing the 1996 Nitro watch-alongs, Liam, we've been saying then that the headliners of um, of Sting and Luger and Hogan and Flair are feeling stale there, and four years later they're still in the same position. Yeah, it, it wasn't actually that bad when we covered the first few months of it there there were some cringe inducing things in the 95 nitros don't get me wrong but there were little pairings like sting and malenko and there were some combinations of the tag teams and that and i managed to keep it fresh and first few weeks of 96 we've covered and we we've kept commenting to each other haven't we dean that that it feels like this exact match has happened before. Oh, wait, next match, it feels like this has happened before. We are starting to repeat the pairings already. But to really hammer it home, five years before this pay-per-view, we had the first uncensored event. 
and yeah it's got had this reputation for being a massive clusterfuck all these weird matches and embarrassing things going on and it started with a point in time where it's it's technically um hogan and vader in the match but flair's it flair's involved and at that point the hogan flair thing had already run its course they'd had the career ending cage match at halloween havoc which even then the numbers at the at the gate were dwindling for it so interest was already waning from that bash at the beach peak uh and back then you'd think hogan flair yeah, yeah, it's starting to run its course. Start shuffling the deck a bit. 1999, they're in a barbed wire cage match main event for the title, and here they are main eventing again with a little shuffle of the of the card that's supposed to lead to the storyline thing. And when I say lead to storyline thing, it's going to be Sid, who has every right to be aggrieved with how he's being overshadowed, being cast as the bad guy as he drops the title to Hogan, and. The massive 14-match confusing clusterfuck on six days' notice that was Spring Stampede 2000, I can safely say, is still superior to whatever Kevin Sullivan would have set up. You're not uh, a fan of Kevin Sullivan unless he's dressed up as an old lady. Or, or a Baywatch cast member. He should have gone master of this, guys. I, I, if they wanted to set me a challenge where I had to book WCW, but I couldn't bring in... Other guys I liked more who could work, but I had to use the same guys, but writing myself. Yeah, I'd absolutely have Kevin Sullivan performing run-ins in various outfits every week. I'd have Terry Funk turning every match he's in into an I Quit match, and every everyone on staff saying, ignore Terry, it's not an I Quit match. It's just an exhibition with a, with a young boy, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, I'd have a hell of a time. And I'd bring back the hobo. I'd bring back Macho Man and Hulk's hobo from that episode of Nitro. And Hulk's Zorro mask. Oh, yes. I'd bring the whole lot back. And we, we it'd feel like an acid trip, but it, it, at least it wouldn't be depressing to watch. I'm sorry, Justin. Sometimes he goes off like this. <laughs> That's quite all right. I was just feeling nostalgic for all the Hogan insanity from 1995. Mm. It's not hot. Oh, yeah. and all that, and all that Dungeon of Doom. Malarkey. That's what I was hoping the Firefly Funhouse was going to be, and to to an extent, it didn't disappoint. But yeah, I went him to say there, there's no Cena maniacs here. <laughs> yes, uh, we need Bray, we need Bray Wyatt to be uh, consulted upon by, you know, King Curtis from Beyond the Grave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> match made in heaven. That's just such a natural pairing. But yes, oh, my come forth, my son. <laughs> my massive rants. It's true, Dean. My massive rants are in the contract, just like Harley Race's contract states. He has to take a massive bump at every pay per view. Every pay per view. Yes. Okay. Now, um, so before we uh, before we let you go, uh, Justin, we always do ask our um, our guests to choose a WCW theme tune that means something to them. And you have provided uh, Liam with one. So Liam, if you could uh, press play in three, two, one, and let's see what we've got.
glorious. So, well, I, I immediately think Hollywood Blondes, but this is obviously this has been several other people as well. Yes, it's been kind of hoard a bell by various wrestlers. Uh, Chick Snake Roberts, I believe, had it. Marty Jannetty. Um, I think Devin Storm and A. Starling had it for a, for a time on Nitro when they were just two very, very, very underneath guys. Always had a nice aura of menace to it, I thought. But, but of course, the Hollywood Blondes, Austin and Pillman, the first ones that come to mind, doing the uh, movie reel hand gesture. It's a good, it's a good swagger to it as well, doesn't it? That that pace to it. I think the song's called Satan's Sister, which makes me wonder who Satan's sister would be if that's Sister Abigail, perhaps. Oh. And and yeah, I mean the Hollywood Blondes, of course, were well, you know, a great tag team, and they were kind of just randomly put together. Legend has it because no one had any plans for them in in singles competition. Perished thought. And then they split them up because they were getting too over. That, that's going to be an episode. We're, we're, Dean and I are just going to rant for two hours about the Hollywood Blondes and the way they were handled. And that's that's an episode taken care of. Maybe one day we can get John Moxley and Pillman Jr. to be the new Hollywood Blondes. Since, since Moxley is kind of the modern day Austin. That that would be a good tag team, to be fair. That would be a very good tag team. Uh, I have to concur on that one. That's... Pillman Jr. is really good for someone with only like two years experience. Mm. Now there's a guy, we need a mutual contact to put in a good word for us to get him to come on the show because he'd be an amazing guest to have on. Mm. With a bit with a bit of second hand, second generation sort of knowledge from... And we, we do enjoy speaking to people, even if there's guys who uh, the majority of the WCW fandom comes from after the company's mm. demise. And anyone who's listening who could potentially come on, I would say, yeah, we don't care if you were a fan before 2001. You know, if you love WCW, get involved in the show. Tweet us, Facebook us. We'll have you on for Q&As. We'll have you on as a guest. Oh, I mean, anyone the, the, who's who's masochistic enough to watch this. <laughs> the, be- the beauty of this, especially you know, with, with the... the, the lockdown situation we have uh you know around so many parts of the world is that you know there's there's a whole archive out there so yeah there could easily be people who who never watched it at the time who, who are you know looking back and digging this stuff digging this stuff down but yeah if you are interested in uh getting in that then get in touch with us uh, on twitter at because wcw or facebook.com uh, forward slash because WCW. So, Justin, before you go, where if people want to get hold of you on social media, how can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at JRH Writing. You can also follow Callaholic at Callaholic. They have more followers than, than I do, but that's, that's hardly surprising. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Um, thank, you. So thank you for having me on. You're, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure so um thank you for joining us stay safe uh in the uh new jersey uh hub of coronavirus for what you're saying to us <laughs> earlier on um but this is me the twisted genius dean as saying on behalf of liam hat thank you so much for downloading us wherever you get your podcast from and we'll see you ringside